Section 23 of the Early Hanoverians by Edward Ellis Morris. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Book 2, Chapter 8, Campaign of Fontenoy. After the Battle of Dettingen, the French had some fear that the Allied army would invade France. Their chief reliance for defense was placed not in either of the generals defeated at Dettingham, but in an abler man who then received the nickname Buckler of Alsace. This was Maurice, Count of Saxony, afterwards known as Marshal Saxe, a soldier of fortune, but no Frenchman, and with no special tie to France, except that France had hired his sword. By birth, he was a German, for he was the natural son of Augustus the Strong, Elector of Saxony and King of Poland. By religion he was nominally a Lutheran, but his life was a credit to no religion. In a careless and dissolute age there were few so dissolute as he. His morality was the morality of a camp. A characteristic but unsupported story ran that when he was a boy of eleven or twelve he escaped from his tutors and governors, and appeared in Eugène's camp before Lille, eager to see what war was like. But indeed he was a soldier born and bred, and the first general of his generation, not excepting Frederick the Great, who had to learn from the bitter experience of defeat what Saxe knew without that teaching. There are, however, those who say that Saxe's greatness is to be attributed to the littleness of his opponents. Maurice was tall and powerful-looking. His physical strength was so great that he could break horseshoes with his hands. But when he was appointed to the command of the army in Flanders, he was a wreck. His vices had brought on dropsy, so that he could with difficulty move. Voltaire met him leaving Paris and asked him how he could start for a campaign in health so bad. It is not a question of living, he answered. I must start. The human will has mighty power to conquer physical suffering. During all the Battle of Fontenoy, the general was carried about the field in a litter of basket work, for he could not sit on horseback. Because of his intolerable thirst, he was chewing a leaden bullet. The campaign in Flanders consisted chiefly of sieges until the great Battle of Fontenoy. The French were besieging the strong and important city of Tournay, to the relief of which the Duke of Cumberland, at the head of the Allied army, marched. Leaving a sufficient number of soldiers in his lines before Tournay, and even then having more than Cumberland, Marshal Saxe turned to meet him. The King of France and his son the Dauphin came from Paris on purpose to witness the expected battle. The field of battle is pretty well defined by the river Scheldt on the west side, and some boggy and wooded land on the north. The French occupied the inner side, and as the French meant to receive not to make the attack, their line was strongly fortified. In front of the villages of Antoine and Fontenoy, and between them redoubts had been built, and at the northern edge of the battlefield, on the outskirts of a wood, there was another fort, called after the regiment which held it, the Redoubt de. The space between this and Fontenoy was not fortified, and seems to have been nearly 1,000 yards. Cumberland assigned to his Dutch and Austrian troops the left of his line. Their business was to attack Antoine. 
He himself, with the English and Hanoverian infantry, was to march against Fontenoy. An English general, with some Highlanders and other troops, were told off to attack the fort which lay on the extreme right of the Allies, the Redoubt de. Unfortunately, neither on the right nor on the left was the work done. The English general on the right found the redoubt too strong for him. As he marched to the attack, he met with some French skirmishers in the wood and thought that they formed part of a large body of troops, whereupon he returned to the Duke of Cumberland to ask for artillery, and thus lost the favorable time for attack. For this he was afterwards tried by court-martial and expelled the service. The Dutch and Austrian troops on the left of the line advanced against Antoine, but finding themselves exposed to a galling fire retreated and relinquished the attempt. It was said that one Dutch colonel drew his men off, took them to Ott some dozen miles, whence he wrote to his superiors that the whole Allied army had been cut to pieces except the part which he had prudently brought off safe. Three times did the Duke of Cumberland attack Fontenoy in the centre of the line, but each time he was repulsed, so that none of the attacks on the fort succeeded. Then, hastily modifying his plan, Cumberland determined to break through the French line between Fontenoy and the wood. This was a most desperate enterprise. The ground was very irregular and sloped downward toward the French position. All the way, except when they could secure a momentary cover, the English troops were exposed to a galling crossfire from the batteries on either side of them. Into this space, which, like Balaclava, might be described as the jaws of hell, the English troops, upon order given, bravely advanced in three columns, dragging some cannon with them. Marshal Saxe afterwards said that he never could have believed it possible that any army would attempt such a feat, otherwise he would have placed additional fortifications in the gap. At this stage an incident occurred which has often been discussed. Voltaire gives a story that the officers of the regiment of the English guards, at the head of the advancing column, saluted the French by pulling off their hats, that the French officers returned the salute, that the English commanding officer cried out, "'Gentlemen of the French guards, fire!' whereupon the French officer replied, Gentlemen, we never fire first, fire yourselves. Unfortunately for this pretty story, a letter has been preserved written only three weeks later by this very commanding officer in which he says, It was our regiment that attacked the French guards, and when we came within twenty or thirty paces of them, I advanced before our regiment, drank to them, and told them that we were the English guards, and hoped that they would stand till we came quite up to them, and not swim the Scheldt, as they did the mine at Dettingen, upon which I immediately turned about to our own regiment, speeched them, and made them huzzah. An officer came out of the ranks and tried to make his men huzzah, however there were not above three or four in their brigade that did. Whoever fired first, the English had much the best of the shooting. Their firing was so good that according to a French officer's report, one volley fired against some charging cavalry, brought down 460 men from their saddles. The English columns advanced steadily in every encounter, defeating those opposed to them. The result was that the French army was cut in two. In a battle, the breaking of the enemy's line is always a great point gained. 
it may be remembered especially how it was a favorite movement with Marlborough and how it proved the turning point at Blenheim and at Romilly's. But the movement requires support and does not necessarily give the victory. When Cumberland halted his men three hundred yards beyond Fontenoy, an onlooker might have thought that he would surely win. Such an onlooker would have thought this still more had he known what was a fact that Marshal Saxe had sent to beg for the king and the Dauphin to retire from the battlefield. The king, however, courageously refused. If the Dutch, says Voltaire, had given proper assistance to the English, no resource had been left, not even a retreat for the French army, nor probably for the king and the Dauphin. Had either of the flank attacks succeeded, the English chances would have been excellent. But the strength of the French position lay in their forts, and not one of the forts fell into the hands of the Allies. In spite of their success, the English column was driven back and the battle lost. A column was the best formation for this famous advance because the artillery were on each side of it, and it was necessary that the smallest surface should be presented as a mark to the guns. Now the French brought artillery full ahead of the column, and able to play along its entire length, the destruction became terrible. Then followed a general rally of the whole of the French troops and a simultaneous charge on the column from all quarters. The following is the account of an eyewitness. The marshal had commanded that the cavalry should touch the English with their horses' breasts. He was obeyed. Officers of the king's chamber charged pell-mell with guards and musketeers. The king's pages were there sword in hand. So perfect was the time observed, so perfect the courage, so unanimous was the indignation against the repulses they had suffered, so exact the concert, the cavalry with drawn swords, the infantry with fixed bayonets, that the English column was shattered and disappeared. As the English retreated from the field, their rear was protected by their cavalry. The total English loss was 9,000, 7,000 killed and wounded, 2,000 prisoners. The column had consisted of 16,000 men. Voltaire gives an account how the suggestion was made to Marshal Saxe of these movements which brought victory to the French, but other and later writers, jealous for the honor of the general, deny that he was taken aback or accepted suggestions from others. Some even think that he allowed the English column to advance as into a trap, in order that the defeat might be the more complete. It was a repetition of an old story. The English fought bravely, but they were not well led. The youthful Cumberland, he was only twenty-four, could not make the Allies work, and the brave advance was thrown away because it was not supported. It must, however, be remembered that the ground between Antoine and Fontenoy was fortified, whilst there was no fort between Fontenoy and the wood. One point remains to be mentioned. Amongst the most gallant troops of the French army was the Irish Brigade. This force, consisting of some five regiments, was composed of Irish exiles, Jacobites to a man, and full of deadly hostility against England and the English government. A portion of this brigade had in the earlier part of the battle helped to defend Antoine against the Dutch. The remainder had been comparatively inactive, and on account of their freshness, 
were chosen to lead the final charge on the English and Hanoverian column. The Irish Brigade is said to have advanced to the tune of the White Cockade. This is the badge at the same time of the House of Stuart and of the House of Bourbon, which befriended the Stuarts. Shouting in their own language, remember Limerick and Saxon treachery, the exiles rushed upon the English column, which contained many of their own kin. There was all the fury of civil war in this deadly struggle on foreign soil. This was the charge which decided the fortune of the day, and it is with truth that in later days a great Irish orator, Grattan, remarked, We met our own laws at Fontenoy. The victorious troops of England were stopped in their career of triumph by the Irish Brigade, which the folly of the penal laws had shut out from the ranks of the British army. King George is said, on hearing of the Irish bravery, to have exclaimed, Cursed be the laws which deprive me of such subjects. End of section 23